had sight. And uh, growing up, uh, obviously pre-political correctness of any kind, we had a term for these folks. Crazy. We said they're crazy. Now, uh, obviously political correctness has gone way too far. (laughs) Um, But I do think it has helped us in some ways to understand that there are terms we use that are pejorative or unkind, and, and we can come up with kinder terms, right? Like, I don't mind being saying that I'm short. Um, I don't need to say that I'm height-challenged. Uh, but when we look at someone that's maybe struggling with something like schizophrenia or bipolar or postpartum depression, I, I think it's unkind to say they're crazy. Uh, I don't think that's helpful. But these were folks, as we're driving around, that were unpredictable. They were unstable in what they would do. I don't know if you've ever been on a psychiatric ward, uh, I've been a few times. One of the first hospital visits I ever did as a pastoral intern in Baltimore was to a psychiatric ward. They can be very sad and very scary places, for sure. Uh, very difficult places to be in with folks. And why is that? Why, why, why would we say someone's crazy, and how do we understand that? And, and that's really getting to the heart of this passage, because that's what they're accusing Paul of. They're actually saying he's crazy. Uh, something doesn't match. And so we do need to understand this a little bit to, to get at what is going on in this passage. And so when we think of crazy, maybe you think of old Ben Gunn from Treasure Island, uh, marooned on the island and now wearing rags and unkipped hair and jumping around, singing weird songs and, and acting in a way that's unpredictable and it's frightening to us. Maybe you think of someone's crazy if they take a particular career path. Uh, someone that's a rescue diver going to jump out of a perfectly good helicopter 50 feet above rolling oceans to try to help somebody else. You might think, well, that's crazy. Uh, Maybe it's a hobby that someone would choose, climbing a mountain, free climbing with no ropes and no protective equipment hanging off, and one little slip or one little misgrip, and they plummet to their death, or maybe even someone that runs into a fire or an ultramarathoner. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news, but 21 people died at an ultramarathon in China just yesterday because the temperature took a turn. They're all wearing tank tops and shorts, and a sudden cold front moved in, and it was hailing and snowing, and 21 people died of hypothermia. Maybe you look at sports and some of these activities and hobbies or career choices, and you think, they're crazy, or maybe you're thinking Ben Gunn. And what do we mean when we're saying that? Here's, here's how it actually functions in our thinking as a word, because words matter. What we are saying is that person is acting or living or speaking in an unpredictable and unexpected way. We don't understand why they do what they do or why they say what they say, why they believe what they believe. It seems crazy to us. If you study other religions and, and you're aware maybe right now of what COVID is doing in India and they can't, they cremate their bodies there and then they dump their ashes into their holy rivers, they literally have so many people dying, they can't burn them fast enough. And that sounds to us crazy, right? Like what, why are you doing this? Or we think of some of the famines that afflicted third world countries uh, decades, a few decades ago. And then we find out because of some of them in their Hindu beliefs, they wouldn't kill readily available cattle that could be killed and eaten because of their belief. And so they're starving to death while cattle are walking around. We think that's crazy. What we're saying is they're acting in an unpredictable or unreasonable way. We are coming at this from a completely different perspective. This really matters because in verse 13, when Paul says this, am I beside myself? 
That word literally means, am I out of my mind? Because this is what they're accusing him of. Paul, the way you do ministry, the way you think, the way you act is crazy. And so this begins to frame everything Paul says from this point in chapter 5 down through chapter 7, or the first part of chapter 7. You see, the Corinthians simply looked at Paul and they didn't understand why he did what he did and why he said the things he said and why he acted the way he acted. And so instead of doing any deep thinking to it, they just said, it doesn't make sense and it's crazy. Well, Paul hears this, and you can only imagine being Titus at this moment, right? Titus uh, is the one who took the severe letter back to the church in Corinth. Remember, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. They didn't really respond well. He shows up for a visit. They call it the painful visit. Uh, and then the, he has to leave there because a business meeting goes bad. That's how we know they're Baptists because we have bad business meetings sometimes, right? Um, and so bad business meeting, he's out of Dodge. Then he writes this letter. He sends it with Titus. Titus comes back and reads a severe letter. Now Titus brings a report back to Paul how they responded. You can only imagine the scene. Uh, Paul's eager to know, Titus, what happened? Well, well Paul, uh, the man repented. The man who was in this illicit affair with his stepmother, he repented. Uh, the church repented and they disciplined him out of the church. Uh, now there's a little bit of a struggle there because he wants to be reconciled, but they don't want to let him back. And, but overall, the people responded well. And Paul says, overall? Well, most of them, Paul, but there still are some. Well, what's going on? Well, you remember that guy in the meeting? He said a lot of things about you, and he basically threw a lot of mud at you. And Paul said, yeah, but you said he repented of this. And Well, Paul, that's true, but some of the mud stuck. And some of these people believe what he said. Oh, okay, well, well what's the mud? What do I have to deal with? Well, <laughs> And you can just imagine, Paul, Titus, come out with it. There's some people saying that you're not right in the head. Excuse me? Yeah, um, apparently they think you're actually crazy. You're unhinged. You need Dr. Luke to come and help you out. You need a sanatorium. You need medication. They think I'm crazy? Yeah, the ones I led to the Lord, preached the gospel to, and founded their church? Yeah. The ones I went back to, to appeal to them to follow the gospel? Yes. They think you're crazy. I don't know about you, but that would hurt. That would be painful. To have someone accuse you that you've loved and poured into of not being right in your head because you've loved and poured into them. You're crazy. And so Paul needs to respond to this. And and so let's link these concepts up of what crazy is and how they think about Paul. At the essence, then, they look at how Paul does ministry, what he says, how he functions, how he's following Christ, and they think it's unreasonable. It doesn't make any more sense to them as somebody running back into a flaming building time after time after time. It's crazy to them. And so Paul has to begin to explain to them, and Paul does think deeply. They don't think deeply, but Paul sits and he spends some time considering, why would they think that what I'm doing is crazy when I know what I'm doing is following Christ? And Paul begins to come up with an answer, and the answer is this, because they don't do ministry out of love. And so the broader section is really going to look like this. Love is what motivates Paul, love of God and love of others, and that's what we'll see this morning in these verses in 11 through 15. It's really introductory because he's going to keep coming back to those themes. And he's going to say love is actually what defines true ministry. 
Paul needs to make that point so that they understand it's not just Pauline ministry. It's all true ministry is love motivated. You can't do ministry apart from the fuel, the nitromethane, the rocket fuel of love. If you're going to do ministry, it's not that you either do your ministry or crazy ministry. The only ministry is the way they see Paul do it. So Paul says, this is what motivates my ministry. Love is what motivates all true ministry. Then he's going to press on. He says, love is what actually creates this ministry endurance. This is how I keep pressing on. That's one of the things they, they think he's crazy about. You keep getting kicked in the teeth and you keep coming back. You must be crazy. I dated a girl one time who broke up with me three times in one year. And my friends all said, you're crazy. And why do you keep going back? And the Corinthians have this idea about Paul. Why do you keep coming back? You're crazy. And Paul wants them to know love motivates endurance in ministry. You and I don't endure in ministry because we're selfish. And so Paul needs to help them understand this. The Corinthians need to then learn love. They don't understand it. They don't get it. We actually know that even from 1 Corinthians. Paul knew it way back then. That's where we have the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. And then ultimately, he's going to point out to them, he's going to get to the end, he's going to say, now let me point out your ministry. It's because your ministry is selfish. And so all of this text revolves or flows out of this concept of Paul's This accusation against Paul that he is crazy. Our main takeaway this morning then would be this. Love of God and love of others produces passionate ministry. There should be a passion to what you and I do as we serve God. There should be a zeal to it. There should be an excitement and an enthusiasm to it. I I think it flows out of the gospel itself. When Jesus gives the parable uh, of the treasure hidden in the field, and the man is digging, he finds his treasure. He's a poor man. He doesn't have a lot, but he uncovers this this immense treasure. Uh, He covers it up. He goes home, and he sells everything that he has, everything that he has. He sells his kids' stuffed animals. He sells his mom's dishes she passed down to him. He sells his wife's best dress. He puts the little hovel that they all live in up for sale. He sells the pots and pans. He sells everything. It is an everything must go sale. What will you give me for it? You got two pennies for this? Great, take it. Everything. He sells everything in order to buy the field and have that treasure. But Jesus says that he sells it, listen now, with joy. It is a misnomer to think that people come kicking and screaming to the cross. Now hear me right, every single one of us is resistant to the gospel. God, though, overcomes that resistance by granting us faith and repentance, and when he does, we sell all with joy. Now, do you think you can really sell all with joy at the start of your walk with Jesus and lose the zeal and the passion and the joy as you go along? You ought not, my friend. The normative path for the believer should not be to move toward lukewarmness. But it should be with passion and with zeal for the sake of the kingdom. I'm going to keep on keeping on. And so Paul is passionate because he loves God and he loves others. A lack of passion in how you do ministry and what drives you to do ministry is not reflective of a different personality. It's reflective of of shallow joy and shallow love. And so Paul has to help them understand this truth. And and so I hope by God's grace, it will help us. And so let's go right to the middle of the passage then. So you look back down your text, this, this strange verse. He says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. 
In other words, if we are out of our minds, if we do something unexpected or, or act in an unreasonable way, we do that between us and God. Now, you understand this <laughs> if you've ever been really burdened for somebody, right? You've been burdened for them. And I've talked to, I've talked to, this is one of those moments of joy of having been with you folks for like 15 years. Because I've talked to some of you and you've said, I'm going to go visit this person. I'm going to go see this person this week. I'm going to talk to this person this week. And it has been everything ranging from cousins to aunts and uncles to children. I'm going to talk to those. And, I, and I, they're not walking with the Lord right now, or they're living in a disobedient way, or this person needs to hear the gospel. And I'm so burdened. And I've talked to some of you, and you've been in tears about it. Uh, you've emailed me before. Please pray for me. I'm about to talk to this person. And between you and God, what are you doing? You're like, God, I don't, you got to show up. You need to give some words here. I don't know what to do. Uh, you're, you're a wreck. Some of you, you're emotional uh, because you're like so passionate about this. You just don't know what to say. And you don't show up at that meeting and suddenly, and sometimes you feel like you do, suddenly you box of tissues and you can't even, <laughs> when you're trying to have that conversation. You might be zealous. You might be passionate. This is what Paul's saying. If I have that kind of moment, you're saying I'm crazy. Like this is between me and God. But when I've dealt with you, Everything I've done has been pretty sober-minded. That's what the phrase means. Self-controlled. You're a false accusation that I'm crazy because of what I've said to you. And so Paul is actually saying he lives crazy. <laughs> That's how he lives and does ministry. If you're going to say Paul's ministry is crazy, <laughs> then you don't understand ministry. Now, now, so then that would lead us to ask this question. Why would they accuse it? On what basis... Would they say that Paul's out of his mind? I want to unpack that a little bit more. It is the concept that what he does in their minds is irrational or unreasonable. Why would you give yourself to this? But thankfully, if we continued studying through 2 Corinthians, and we'll get to this chapter, I'm sure, just in two or three weeks in chapter 11, <laughs> um, you actually see some of the specifics. Because when you get to chapter 11, Paul begins to use the same phrasing in a sarcastic way. Uh, and so they're saying, Paul, you're out of your mind. Here in chapter 5, he goes, oh, really? Oh, I'm out of my mind? If I'm out of my mind, it's toward the Lord, but I'm reasonable towards you people. You get to chapter 11, and it, Paul starts doing it this way. Oh, let me talk as a madman. Oh, let me talk as a fool now, right? What I'm saying is foolish. And he gets very sarcastic. And anytime you see sarcasm in the Bible, I just want to remind you, it's sarks. It means to cut, to pierce. It's because you're having to pierce through very hard minds and hard hearts. And so it's, it's, a, it's a scalpel, man. This, this is a precious tool. But chapter 11 begins to open our eyes to what they accuse him about. He opens up chapter 11. He says, I wish you'd bear with me in this foolishness. Foolishness there means to make idiotic choices. Unreasonable, questionable choices. He says, I wish you'd bear with me now in this foolishness that I do. First thing that they accuse him of being crazy about is that his ministry is marked by financial hardship and difficulty. Now, if you were to go back a few hundred years, we sang a song by Charles Wesley this morning, and can it be a glorious hymn. If you were to go back to those days, late 1700s, mid to late 1700s, up through about the early 1900s, to choose to be a minister was a, for many, an economic choice you were going to get paid well enough to live. You were going to work hard. Uh, you were still going to have to go visit people, prepare sermons, do all these sorts of things, do counseling, do discipleship, uh, minister in the community. But you were going to have a livable wage. 
uh, whether that was going to be administered and oversaw by specifically then even the Anglican church. Uh, if you were going to be a Catholic priest, you're going to be paid and taken care of. If you're going to be Methodist, you're going to be paid and taken care of. Baptist, you're going to be paid and taken care of. This was a career economic choice. Now, now that season for many has passed away. If you want to do ministry, primarily you don't go into ministry to, to get wealthy. But if you go all the way back to the Corinthians day, you still could do it to get wealthy, just like you can do it in our day. Right? And so in their day, specifically in Corinth, you would go get a patron. And a patron was somebody who would basically fund you personally, privately, so that you could study and you could speak. And philosophers did this in the Greek city-states. And so they looked at Paul, and you might remember some of this from 1 Corinthians, they couldn't understand why Paul wouldn't go and get a patron. There's this wealthy person, a man or a woman in Corinth, and they would pay Paul, and Paul would then be free to study. Instead, Paul says, no, I'm not going to take a wealthy patron, and they see Paul work this merchant blue-collar job of making tents all day, and that doesn't make any sense to them, and they know Paul at times goes without food. They know that Paul goes without good clothing. They know that Paul doesn't have all of his travel expenses met all the time. They know that Paul is in neglect and in need. And in the Corinthians' mind, they look at it and they say, that's crazy. Because somebody would pay you, Paul. And Paul refuses to do that because in 1 Corinthians, he points out to them, the difficult thing is if somebody is paying you, if one person is paying you, what do you think the accusation is going to be when you say something that people don't like? You're in their pocket. And Paul says, I'm not going to twist the gospel that way. And the Corinthians look at Paul and they say, you're crazy. It is crazy to do ministry in a way that will be marked by loss, by deprivation, by difficulty. If you're going to do ministry, then go do ministry somewhere where you don't have to worry about the bills, you don't have to worry about having everything you want, you don't have to worry about getting whatever you need, you don't have to worry about anything. Paul, if you want to do ministry, because look at all these super apostles that have rolled into Corinth, and they all got wealthy patrons. So they looked at Paul's choice as crazy. And then secondarily, Paul stands up to the super apostles. He confronts them. He calls them super apostles. That's not a nice thing to call them. He's, he's exaggerating and making fun of them, and they don't understand that. They don't understand that because Paul's going to stand up to the powerful people. And you didn't do that in his day and age. You frankly don't do that in our day and age, do you? So the last thing you do is pick a fight with somebody who has influence. And they think it's crazy that Paul does that. They've seen Paul be taken before the Roman magistrate and have to give an account for what he's done. And it's because he's making the wrong people angry. I don't want to make them mad at me. I don't want to make someone who has influence or has power. I don't want to disappoint them. Uh, I'm going to be able to have more ministry if they're not mad at me. And Paul doesn't think that way at all. Paul's like, nope, if it's truth, I'm going to die on it. And they think that's absolutely crazy. We understand that. I mean, you and I are never going to be in the position of making some political leader or business executive angry. But I believe when Jesus presents the gospel and he tells us and he puts it on an affectionate level and he says, you have to love me 
more than father, mother, sister, brother. You have to love me more than son or daughter. I'm convinced if you've come to know Christ, every single one of us have people in our lives that if we continue in a course of following Jesus, we're going to make them angry. And I'm also convinced that every one of us in this room, okay, well, I'll just put it this way. Let's narrow it. I'm convinced that everyone on this platform has at some points in their life been unwilling to have relational loss for the sake of truth. It seemed crazy to me. And they think it's crazy that Paul's willing to do this. Thirdly, thirdly, they've seen Paul suffering. He's been beaten. Uh, he's been beaten with an inch of his life. He's been whipped. He's been stripped naked. He's, he's been starved. He's been rejected. Here, here, he's being accused of being crazy. Like, it's shocking that we have the letter 2 Corinthians to even deal with these people again. You know what my heart is? I mean, you're at the point where you actually want to go around and say, I'm crazy. I'm pretty sure I want to put you on some no-speaking terms, right? You're on time out, right? You're, you're in the corner of my life. You, you, you don't get to talk anymore. Your speaking privileges have been revoked. And Paul comes back and engages with them again and again and again and again. And they think that's crazy to do ministry that way. They think it's absolute insanity to do ministry through suffering. If they're going to hurt you, get out of Dodge. Right? I'm going to create healthy boundaries so you can't ever hurt me again. I'm not going to do ministry in any kind of way that's going to elicit pain for me. And they think you're crazy if you're willing to do ministry where you suffer. And then lastly, just contextually, Paul's defending the severe letter that he wrote to them following his painful visit. Now, this is important because we can't unpack all of this this morning, but when you get to chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 11, and he begins to discuss this letter to them. It is in chapter 7. He says things that he wrote this letter with tears. Um, he says that he himself questioned the letter when he sent it. He was worried about it. So whatever the contents of this severe letter, it was pretty intense. It was pretty emotional. Have you ever been with someone and they've gotten you worked up, right? Uh, like usually it's, it's, it's most likely been a family member, but they know just the right button to push just to get you. Uh, I spent one summer traveling with an evangelistic team. Uh, it was, there was four of us guys. We traveled all over the kind of the northern United States, New York City. We were in Detroit. We were over in uh, outskirts of Chicago, all the way over to Rockford, Illinois, uh, right at the, at the border even of Iowa at one point, Wisconsin. So we spent 10 weeks traveling together. And by about week two, you could tell that two of us were really close friends, um, and then, and then the, but among the relational connections, the rest, we didn't really like each other. We had to tolerate each other. And, but what we had to do was go in and we'd spend a week in a church and it was youth rallies and we would do improv comedy. Uh, and then we would, we would do games and we'd do water games. And then, and then I would preach every night. And, and so that's what we do. It's really hard to work as a ministry team when you annoy each other. But I tell you what else happens after about five weeks, we knew each other and how to push buttons. We knew exactly what to do or say to push buttons all the time. 
Well, girlfriend I referenced earlier that had broke up with me, she broke up with me again at the start of that summer. So they all knew I was a little raw, a little tender, a little, little painful. And one night, I'll never forget, we're in Brooklyn, New York, at this church. We're doing improv comedy. And when you do improv comedy, you get prompts from the crowd. Hey, we need, we need a career. We need this. We need a situation. We need a location. We need all these things. And there was a guy on our group, Scott, who really didn't like me. And he loved to goad me, to push my button. And he was the one running the improv comedy. And, and so somehow he's like, hey, we need some careers. We need some choices, like, like maybe a, a soccer coach or a writer, two things that I did for the school. Kids are like, oh, writer. He's like, okay, Steve, you're going to be a writer. Now we need a girl. We need somebody's name that's, that would be a female. And he threw out the name of the girl that just dumped me on purpose. So I'm standing in front of this church, supposed to do improv comedy, and this dude now has me interacting with somebody like it's my ex-girlfriend. He did it just to egg me on. And so after we were all done, I pulled him out of the room, and I was, I was mad. I wasn't mad. You know, I was angry. Uh, I heard somebody say one time, I don't get angry. Dogs get mad. I, I get angry. And I was intense. And I'll never forget, it so frustrated me. He knew what he had done. He pushed my buttons, and this is the game he played. I don't know why you're so upset. What's, what's bothering you? Like, he didn't know what he had done. You ever saw somebody do that to you? Man, you want to fry some bacon? That's how you do it, right? You just frustrate them, frustrate them, and then try to play the guard. You go, well, you know, why don't we talk about this when you're calm? So Paul writes this letter, and there's, it's filled with emotion and passion and zeal. And do you know what the response is? It? Oh, Paul, I don't know why you're so upset. You're crazy. And so Paul's writing this letter to them that's pleading with them to repent. And they want to act like he's the problem because he's having to defend it. The reality is Paul's being very dogmatic about issues that they don't think are a big deal. They think Paul's making a mountain out of a molehill. They think Paul's making a big deal out of nothing. Uh, yeah, okay, we need to deal with the guy. Okay, yeah, we need to discipline him. Okay, yeah, he needs to repent. Okay, yeah, we shouldn't be doing this with our communion service. Okay, yeah. Okay, Paul, calm down. You're, you're like over the top, dude. Back it off a couple notches. Like Paul's the problem and not their sin. You ever dealt with somebody and they act like you're the problem, not their sin? And so they say, Paul, you're crazy for acting in this way. We could boil it down this way. Paul's zeal for the holiness of God and his love for the truth with his passionate pleas are interpreted as inappropriate, overly dogmatic, emotional outbursts of an unhinged man. They play the game that, that Satan has played all through the Old Testament. You go all through the Old Testament, and, w and when the false teachers don't like what the prophets say, they make it about the prophets. They make it about the man, not the message. And it's a you problem. And so as Paul's dealing with this, we, we come to understand there's actually a real heritage of crazy in the Bible. When you think about ministry, it's a foreshadowing ultimately of a future trial that Paul's going to experience. In just a few years, Paul is going to be dragged before Agrippa and Festus, and Paul is going to be giving his testimony, and Paul's going to be proclaiming about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and, and about his own salvation. And it's fascinating because you get to the end of that as Paul is standing before a judgment seat, and he's explaining his beliefs. This little interaction happens. Paul says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. 
So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. It seems like any time someone is zealous for God's glory and his holiness, lost people and immature Christians will interpret that as crazy. So you want to say, I'm following a person who was God in the flesh, who died willingly and was raised the third day, and I'm also going to die one day and be resurrected with him. That offends them, and they think that's crazy. But Paul has a heritage here. There's a whole heritage of crazy in the Bible. The prophets are accused of being crazy, and they do some wild things. I mean, you have Ezekiel sleeping on one side for, for uh, something like 300 and some days and uh, building a fire out, out of his own feces and roasting things on it, all as object lessons. I don't have Hosea here, but Hosea, uh, who goes and marries a woman who becomes a prostitute, he keeps chasing her in order to prove the love of God. You have Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He, he makes the king angry. They throw him down in a pit full of mud. Uh, when they pull him up out of the pit of mud, what's the first thing he does? Rebuke the same guy that threw him in there. That's just crazy. And they looked at these guys and they always said they're crazy because they were zealous for God's glory. And they were proclaimers of his holiness. And anytime you do that, people will say you're overzealous. You make too much of this. You're crazy. All of this pointed forward to, and Paul points backwards to Christ. Christ's own family. He finishes preaching at one point. He sends his disciples out. He comes back to his hometown. He's preaching again. People are gathering so that Jesus can't even eat lunch that day. And this is what his own family says. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. They said Jesus was crazy. His own family said he was crazy. Then later in John, the religious leaders, many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why? Listen to him. And you know what these always revolved around? They always revolved around Jesus being willing to suffer and proclaiming his own death. And so it becomes easy to see why the Corinthians think Paul's so crazy. They don't think you should ever have to do ministry in a way that hurts. And they think it's crazy if you do ministry in a way that hurts. They think that's nuts. There's got to be another way to serve God. And so I want you to know this. Ministry done right will frequently seem irrational to the lost and to the immature Christian. Now, why is that? Because they operate from a warped sense of normal. Remember, crazy is very simply, a, I see your behavior and I don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think it's irrational. And Paul is flipping the script. Because what we begin to see, whether it's from the prophets or from Jesus or from the life of Paul, we begin to see and understand this reality. If you do ministry God's way, it will always look crazy to people from the world. Now, why is that, though? And it has everything ultimately to do with love. 
And so if you come back to the text, Paul says it in two specific ways. First, in, the, in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There's two ways he unpacks it, and we could really call this the awe of God. I want to say it that way because when we hear the word fear, uh, we, we don't commonly understand what is meant by this. And Paul's not talking about a terror fear. He's not talking about this terror fear like God is still the executioner judge that's going to kill him. Paul's talking about an awe fear of God. He is an awesome God. He's a holy God. He's a glorious God. And because of that, I'm filled with his glory and his, and his wonder and his holiness. And so I want to proclaim that to others. I want to live it personally, and I want you to live it and know it. It's an awe that's born out of affection for someone. You ever met someone and you're linked and you, you just like them, right? You're just friends with them. But then the longer you get to know them, there are things that maybe you didn't know them about at the beginning, maybe hidden talents, blessings, and you, and you begin to see more and more about them and you just love them more and you're just like in awe of them. This is just amazing who they are. And what Paul is saying is when you come into the relationship with God, you are filled with an awe of who he is. And because you are filled and consumed with the vision of the awe of God, you want other people to know about it. You love him deeply. When we think about awe of God, then we begin to understand the Corinthians' problem. Really wasn't a crazy problem. It was a selfish problem. They didn't love God as they should. Now, I want to say this very carefully and very clearly. I don't believe for one second you have to go hunting suffering as you follow Jesus. It will come. I also am very convinced of this. You will not be able to follow Jesus your life. Do ministry loving God and others and not suffer. It will happen. I guarantee it. Because I want to remind you that Paul even told us as much in Romans 8 when he talks about the assurance of our salvation that the Holy Spirit communicates with our spirit that we are his children and he finishes that and if we have suffered with him. As you and I go through painful things and as we do ministry and it hurts, and it hurts. It hurts so bad, it scars you. And you persist by faith, not of your own creation, but of the gift of God, you begin to see I am his. And so Paul comes at this from the angle of loving God. He says, I'm filled with this awe of God. And so it's important enough for us to understand this fear of God, awe of God and uh, this fear of the Lord, you can trace it all through the Bible. First and foremost, awe of God is the result of seeing God in his glory. When we see God for who he really is, we are blinded by his glory. We, we are uh, filled with a, with a holy reverence for his glory. Our hearts are engaged and our, our minds are activated as we understand and see who he is. This is why in the New Testament and the Gospels, so often salvation is referenced as like the deaf now hearing or the blind now seeing or most preeminently as the dead now walking. And so when we begin to see God for who he is, we, we see him in his glory and we are filled with an awe of him, an abiding sense of his worth 
and of his value and of his holiness. So if we track that through the Bible, actually, and, and obviously we don't have time all this morning, but I want to give you the highlight moments to help you understand and see this biblically. The first one happens in Exodus. Uh, and so in Exodus, the ba- their backs, to their backs are the Egyptian army, to their front is the Red Sea, and they are afraid, and it's a terror fear, because we're either going to drown or get slaughtered. And Moses says, don't be afraid, God's going to show up, and God does show up, and he parts the Red Sea, they pass through on dry land, they turn around, they watch the Egyptian army start to ride their chariots down into the valley created by the dry riverbed of the Red Sea, and then suddenly the waves come crashing back and it drowns them all, and they're all standing there, and you can only imagine, now the winds have stopped, the water's calm, the Egyptian army's gone, and Moses looks at them. And Moses says to them, Israel sees this great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. It is an awe of God moment. Now, this isn't terror fear of God because he just saved them. This is the awe of God kind of moment, uh, like, like the lady Jessica, who had been held by Boko Haram, and the Navy SEALs grab her, they shield her with their bodies, they, they slaughter the enemy, her hostage takers, they rescue her, she's on the brink of kidney failure, they throw in her Black Hawk chopper, they fly her out, and she's safe now, and she's in awe of her rescuers. She's not afraid of them. They still have all their gear on, they still have their guns, they've just killed a bunch of people. She's not afraid of them, she's in awe of them. The Jews are in awe of God. This scene is somewhat repeated when Joshua leads the nation of Israel into the promised land. Now, Moses is dead. Uh, Now we've got to follow Joshua. And Joshua, we know, is a little bit of a fearful man because the Bible tells him, have courage, have courage, have courage. And so then they cross over the Jordan, and guess what God does? He kind of does a mini repeat of the Red Sea. And he parts it, and they cross over on dry land. Uh, they create a, a, a tower, a pillar to monument it, and the waves come back. And, and what does he say to them? He says, now fear God. It's an awe of him and seeing what he's doing. An awe of God is a result of seeing God in his glory. You fast forward in the Old Testament, and you come to wisdom literature. Uh, the book of Proverbs supremely talks so much of the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? And it begins to link, though, in every single time, every time in the wisdom literature, you have fear of the Lord and God. It always uses the specific name for God that is the name he uses for his covenant people. In other words, awe of God is inseparable from the safety of his salvation. You are filled with an awe of God because you've seen him in his glory and because you are safe in him. I don't need to be afraid of God hurting me. I don't need to be afraid of God sending me to an eternal hell. I am safe in his arms because of what Christ has done for me, and because because God has gifted me faith and repentance, I've turned from my sin, I believe him, he's rowed me in Christ's righteousness, and so I'm in awe of his rescue, and I'm safe in salvation. 
But then all of God proceeds. And, and so just like biblical theology, you can trace it through the Old Testament from, from uh, the children of Israel to Red Sea and Joshua. And I'm, I'm circumventing. There's other examples. But Joshua, then you get to wisdom literature, and it's always linked to his safety. And the wisdom literature starts to hint at something else, though. When you and I have a right awe of God, it changes what we do and how we live. And when you get to the New Testament, it becomes very explicit. All of God always results in changed behavior. So much so that we would say this. If you come to church on Sunday morning and you sing well, and you should sing well, and by that, I don't mean perfect pitch, but I mean out of hearts enraptured with God, filled with a vision of his glory, and you sing and well and and worship well with hearts engaged and you don't change how you live you never had the awe of god because awe of god is not limited to a worship moment it's extended to a lifestyle and so awe of god always produces a changed behavior. So, so an awe of God is I'm humbled before him and I see his glory. I'm safe in him and my salvation, but then I'm going to change the way I live. And actually, Paul's going to point to that. If you, if, same page maybe for you, just like in my Bible. Chapter 7, he says this way. Since, as he's closing this whole idea out, so he begins with this idea, he's going to finish with this idea. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion Where? and the fear of God. And so Paul is telling them, I am motivated. You know why I do ministry the way I do? Do you know why I keep coming back? Do you know why I keep getting my teeth kicked in? Do you know why I keep pursuing you? Do you know why I wrote a severe letter? Do you know why I had a painful visit with you? Do you know why I refused a patron? Do you know why I wanted to, uh, was willing to experience suffering? I'm willing to do ministry out of the weakness and brokenness of my flesh. I'm willing to be honest and transparent about all my weaknesses and my failings and how God's changed me. You know I'm willing to do that because I want God to be seen. Because I love him and I'm in awe of him. Corinthians don't understand that. That's what they don't get. It's not just in awe of God. Later he says it's the love of Christ. When you come down later in the text in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. This love of Christ, and he fashions it out of salvation because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul's telling us that love of God controls everything he does. We should think of that two ways. Number one, you can think of that as Uh, the love of Christ that he has experienced. God has loved me, and because God has so loved me, how would I live for anyone or anything other than God? And and we know Paul thinks this way, because in Romans he tells us God proved his love for us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for me. And because Christ died for me now, the life I now live, and he repeats the same kind of idea in Galatians, the life I now live is Christ in me coming out of me. No one has loved me like this. No one has ever loved me like Jesus. And so that's one way to understand it. But second way to understand this, the love of Christ controls him. The ministry decisions that he makes are because of the love of Jesus coming out of him. 
God has loved me, and now I make the decision, how do I love others? And we see that reference in 1 John. Uh, Beloved, we know if God has put his love in us, then we will love others. If you have been saved, you will love God and you will love others. It's at the very essence of the gospel. And so it's at the very essence of ministry itself. I will love God. I will love others. God has loved me. Christ's love controls me. It constrains me. Love of God and love of others produces passionate ministry. And so Paul is telling them this is a love issue. But it's not just the love of God. It's also this love of others. It's one thing to be filled with the awe of God. But Paul understood that any time a person truly loves God, they must also love other people. And so Paul communicates this to them with passion in order to persuade them. Again, he says in verse 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Uh, It's a term that means to try to convince them in their mind. Later in the passage, you can see that he's preaching the truth of the gospel. Some interpreted this zeal of Paul's, his love, his compassion for them as unhinged behavior. They interpreted it this way because they couldn't understand selfless ministry. They didn't understand why Paul would go through what he's going through. They didn't understand, you know, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like <clears throat> the Corinthians saying, if you're so worked up about us, how about you just go hang out with somebody else? If what we do bothers you so much, just leave us alone then. And they don't understand that Paul keeps coming back, not for himself, but because he loves them. It's, all, it's a little bit like a child, right? A child, you have a child, and a child does something very selfish and very sinful. And their parent is going to discipline them. And for this example, we'll just say corporal punishment. Obviously, we know there's lots of different forms of punishment. You can give timeouts, you can give chores, you can give all kinds of things. This, this example will say it's corporal punishment because famously, this parent in that moment says to the child, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And the child thinks that that's crazy talk because the child's the one that's about to receive the right hand of fellowship. Whereas Alistair Begg, we saw that in the video, he's about to go pow and we're about to go wow. And that's, that's a rough moment, right? And so the child's about to experience this because the child is living in selfish world. They've sinned. Uh, maybe, we'll just say that maybe they backtalked their parents. Maybe they were disrespected. Maybe they disobeyed. Uh, maybe they're dishonest. Those are the three biggies, right? Disobedience, dishonesty, and disrespect. And so they're about to receive discipline. And, and, and I would just, you know, if your child does those, they need discipline of some kind. Right, So here's this moment, they're about to discipline, and, and they say, it's going to hurt me a lot more than it hurts you, because the parent is operating out of love. Now, we all know as parents, we don't always discipline out of love. Parents can discipline out of sinful anger, out of unrighteousness, out of vengeance, out of wrath. I all know that. Just set that to the side for the moment, and we'll say, in this moment, this parent is really loving their child, and they understand God disciplines his children, so I'm going to discipline my children. This is a gospel moment, because my child needs to understand this. If you sin, there are consequences, and if I raise my child believing you can sin without consequences, I'm perverting the truth in the course of this world, and I'm training my child to mock God, Galatians 6. That was a lot there, but... You, you can slow that down, listen to it later on the podcast, right? Um, and so I'm going to do this, and I love them. And the child, in their selfishness, can't fathom that this is love and that it hurts. And that you're, because the child will say, look, if it's going to hurt you more than it hurts me, let's all skip this moment then. 
Let's avoid the pain. And that's the Corinthians' mindset because they can't understand someone so consumed with love for them that they're willing to keep on being hurt by them in order to care for them. It's irrational to them. Irrational to them. And so they, instead, they interpret his zeal. They interpret his compassion as being unhinged. They can't understand selfless ministry. They did ministry for some truth until it cost them approval and affection. Not so for Paul. Paul's motivated out of a deep love for them, knowing that what they needed the most was to be enraptured by the fear of the Lord also. This section of the text is really just an introduction to everything we're going to study for the next several weeks. This is the introduction, but there is a prelude to this. A prelude is an act that happens prior to the events that you're reading about. So a prelude would, might come for a book or happen in a movie to give you some background material. Right here in the middle of this story, in this film, I would remind you the prelude that is driving Paul is this. Paul knew what it was like to be doing selfish ministry. Paul knew what it was like to be zealous. Paul knew what it was like to be motivated as he's driving on the Damascus road to go kill some more Christians. And then Jesus showed up. And Paul knows this, if he could only, by God's grace, preach the gospel to them and speak truth to them and that the Spirit would show up, they too would be blinded by the glory of God and live in awe of Him. He loves God and he wants for them everything he has experienced in Christ. And so he is zealous for them. They can't wrap their minds around someone that loves them like this because they don't love others this way. They do ministry when it's convenient. They do ministry up until the point of sacrifice. They live convinced God would never want them to suffer depravity or deprivation or, or, or financial hardship or rejection. And so they don't do ministry in any kind of way. They don't, they, you know, Jesus, yeah, he said, you have to love me more than all these that you're close to. But they want to live in a reality that thinks I can maintain all those close relationships and simply not speak truth and convince myself I do it because I love them. No, they don't. They love themselves. Paul is convinced that the reality of his ministry would ring true in some of their minds. Paul knows he can't defend himself. This is why he says in the text, we are not commending ourselves. He says, I hope it's known to your conscience. Paul is living in this awareness. He knows that there are some true believers at Corinth that have been transformed by the gospel, as preached through Paul, and he's hoping some of these people would do what? Stand up and defend zealous, passionate ministry. That's what he's hoping for. He's hoping somebody would open their mouth and say, Paul's not crazy, Paul loves God and he loves you. So he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul is pouring heart out to them, hoping that somebody will stand up in Corinth besides Paul and say, this isn't crazy ministry, this is true ministry. Emma Scholes woke up in the middle of the night. To her horror, her house was filled with smoke and it was on fire. She was alone with her six children in the home. She ran down from the third level, knowing that her two boys would, in fear, probably shelter themselves in the playroom, which was at the back of the house with no egress. She grabbed both of her boys out of the playroom, threw them out the front door and locked the front door behind them, trapping herself in a flaming house. She ran upstairs, rescuing a daughter 
dropping her off the second floor balcony, run back in, rescued another child. She said later, I gave birth to six children. I wasn't leaving that house without six children. Ran up the stairs, losing the skin off of her feet. Her flesh already beginning to melt off of her body as 93% of her body is burned. If 90% of your body is burned, you have less than a 10% chance of survival. 93% of her body is burned. She rescues her fifth child, realizing it's only five that are out. She's on the third floor again, crawling on her stomach, losing the flesh from her body as she crawls to her little two-year-old Molly in the crib, screaming her lungs out. She grabs her child, throws her out. She awoke in the hospital she was in a special ward. She was convinced the nurses were lying to her because they had to wait six weeks before they ever let her children come to her again because she was at too great a risk for infection. So she was convinced they were lying to her. All six of her children saved with no permanent injuries whatsoever. Isn't she crazy? I mean, she's crazy. Who in the world runs back into a flaming house? Time after time after time. Who feels the flesh melt from their body but is willing to keep going back in? I guarantee you, your heart this morning doesn't think she's crazy at all. You think she loves. When you understand loving ministry, you stop thinking its zeal is crazy and you get it. Don't think you're crazy when you are passionate for the souls and growth of others. You're not crazy. It's a God-placed love. And you know what Paul needed? He needed somebody else to stand up and affirm that reality. And I'm convinced we need other people to affirm that reality to our own hearts. Because we'll start feeling we're crazy. We're fighting our flesh. What? This is what God wants me to do? It doesn't seem like others are sacrificing this way. What do I do? What does it look like? It looks like an awe of God. When you're filled with the love of God and the love of others, it looks like a person that's consumed with an awe of God. Your heart is gripped privately with your own reconciliation to God. It's a whole person awareness of the kindness, grace, and glory of God. It's a life and mind convinced of his care for you in every way. It's private worship moments that stir your soul and its affections for God. It's a heart that has a deep longing to be with him here by faith and there in person. It's voiced in this understanding, like Paul says at the end, the life that I live here is not mine, but it's in Christ crucified in me. It looks like sacrificial passion. At the core, the Corinthians don't understand that Paul isn't self-serving, their ministry is self-serving, so they assume that his is as well. What is Paul getting out of this? What is his hidden objective? What is Paul's hidden motive? Can I ask you, do you embrace ministry with joy? I mean, with joy. Opportunities to love and sacrificially serve God and others. Does that fill you with an inward delight because you're so consumed with the love of God and others? Do you look for ways to love and serve others? Or do you always have to be told or asked? Do you think about it and pray about it and initiate it? Do you choose to do hard things because you're compelled by love for God and love for others? And then thirdly, I think it looks like suffering with a purpose. Jesus sets the standard 
And it's the core of his own family and the religious leaders thinking that he's crazy. They think Jesus is crazy because he talks about dying. The Corinthians' judgment of Paul has everything to do with his willingness for suffering. If this is what your way of doing ministry looks like, Paul, then and you keep doing it this way, you must be crazy. No, he loves. Suffering will come. You don't need to seek it out. You don't need to look for it. But my question is this, will you capitalize on it for the good gift that it is to minister out of and through to other people? It is suffering to grow. It is suffering to show Christ. It is suffering to pursue others for the sake of the kingdom. But when you do that, when you minister out of suffering, do you know what you show? You show that Jesus is better than comfort, health, wealth, or prosperity. Love of God and love of others produces passionate ministry. I think Paul will have a lot more in store for us in the weeks to come. Father, we thank you for Paul's zeal and his testimony of love. It encourages us and it motivates us. Father, it drives us to want to consider our own redemption and salvation and to do ministry in a loving way. Oh, Father, would you kill the selfishness in each one of us? that we might operate out of a platform of love. Father, it is not crazy to love you and love others more than ourselves. It's Christ-like. And may we live that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.